This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Hey everyone, it's Major Garrett and welcome to our new podcast. Did you know we have a new feed completely separate from the takeout as well? Please just search Debriefing the Briefing. Click subscribe and then if you can, and we'd really love this, drop us a rating and or a review. Pretty soon, you'll have to be subscribed to the new feed if you want to hear new episodes of debriefing the briefing. Thank you, and now let's start the show. Best wishes to Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Americans are all praying for his recovery. We want every American to know that what they're doing is making a difference, but we need to have solidarity of commitment from everyone. Well, this will be a week of heartache. It also is a week of hope. The number one complaint from those hospitals were severe shortages of testing supplies. We have a brand new testing system that we developed very quickly. And you should say congratulations, great job, instead of being uh, so horrid in the way you ask a question. From CBS Audio, this is Debriefing the Briefing. Here's CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Hello from Washington and welcome to Debriefing the Briefing, a summary of the highlights of the Daily White House Coronavirus Task Force Briefing. You just heard sound bites from the April 6th briefing, the 33rd Coronavirus Briefing at the White House. It lasted two hours and 10 minutes. Let's go to some of the top news items. President Trump sent his best wishes to British Prime Minister Boris Johnson in the intensive care unit now. The president described that as a very big, very scary development. President also said he spoke to former Vice President Joe Biden, described it as a good call, and said they exchanged ideas about the federal response to coronavirus. President Trump also, at times, intensely defended the federal role in widespread or the lack of widespread COVID-19 testing across the country. He also said he would personally look into the matter regarding the captain, now relieved of his duty of the USS Theodore Roosevelt, said he doesn't want someone's career destroyed over a bad day. Lastly, the president said he hopes the NFL starts on time, and when it does so, there will be fans in the stadium. Let's bring in CBS News Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. John LaPook. Uh, Dr. LaPook, first of all, I want to ask you about something that was kind of woven through the briefing today, expressions that we are facing a grim week ahead, maybe two weeks as a country, but there is something in the data that offers some legitimate reason for optimism. Do you agree? Well, it's it's hard to know because we're talking about you know a couple of days where the death rate uh, in New York City fell slightly. I think it was by about thirty six people. Um, so you need some more points on the curve. And one of the problems with those points on the curve is there's still a big delay in between the time when, for example, somebody gets a test for COVID 
19, you know, that's the, the nose or the throat test for the PCR. That's to see if you have active ongoing infection and when that is actually processed. And I can tell you straight from the trenches, I've been taking care of a, a bunch of people who have COVID-19 or presume COVID-19. And uh, there's still, for those people who are getting the test, there's a significant delay up to a week with some of my patients still before it's actually processed. And uh, for many of them, it's just too hard to get the test. So we're making presumptive diagnosis uh, saying, you know, yeah, it's it's cold season, it's flu season, it's allergy season. You've got a cough, you've got some, uh, you know, sniffles, low grade fever. You know, let's assume that you have COVID nineteen, and we'll play it like that. Um, well, there are a lot of problems with that, including when do these people go back into the real world, and what are the criteria used to do that? So, continuing the conversation on testing, there was a if you'll allow me, doctor, a testy exchange between a reporter and President Trump about a Health and Human Services Inspector General report, which was a survey of more than 300 hospitals around the country, rooted in data collected at the end of March that said the chief complaint from those hospitals was lack of availability of testing. Let's play a little bit of that exchange. We are doing... ...who say that they're waiting a week or longer Fine. to get their test the results. Why we've done more testing so and had more results than any country anywhere in the world. They're doing an incredible job. Now they're all calling us. They want our testing. What are we doing? How do you do the five-minute test? How do you do the 15-minute test? So give me the name of the inspector general. Uh, could politics be entered into that? Go ahead, please. Later in the briefing, the name of the inspector general was identified, Christy Grimm. She's been with the Office of Inspector General since 1999 and has served both Republican and Democratic administration and been in a senior position in the Office of Inspector General within Health and Human Services throughout the Trump administration. Dr. Lapook, your reaction to that exchange? Well, you know, this is a time, Major, when we have to be embracing science and embracing data. And you've heard it over and over again from Tony Fauci, which is uh, we need to know today what's going on. You know, Dr. Burks had said a while ago that until we get to the point where we have a 24-hour cycle, that means that we're not looking at tests that were done a week ago. We're looking at ones that were done yesterday for today's numbers. We're really not going to get our arms around this. And when you think about mapping out the crisis and when, when the curve is going to be flattened, there's so much data that we still need. And there are two types of tests, a nasal and throat swab that looks uh, for active virus. That means you have the infection now. Uh, that's the PCR test. But the other test that's so crucially important is a blood test. That's look, It's called a serology or antibody test. And that's not looking for active infection. That's looking for evidence that you had the infection in the past. Why is that so important? Because so many people out there may have had the symptoms, maybe they didn't have the symptoms, and we're finding out a lot of people may have no symptoms at all and yet still be infected. And we're talking about this friction in between, do we save the economy or do we somehow treat COVID, but you can't do both? Well, you can get your arms around both. And one way is if somebody tests positive for these antibodies and the antibody titer, the amount of antibodies in them are strong or high enough, then there's a good possibility that that person is going to have some immunity to the COVID uh, infection. And perhaps that person can consider going back on the front lines. And even if it's not a frontline worker, wouldn't it be nice for all of us to know whether or not we have been infected and therefore possibly protected? I say possibly because, you know, if this is like... Um, measles, mumps, rubella, these viruses, a lot of the viruses we've had in the past, you get infected and you have uh, immunity for several years or maybe longer. Here, you know, there's an asterisk. We're not quite sure. 
but this is a blood test that is very easy to do. A couple of a pin, you know, pinprick sort of you get a couple of drops of blood. It can be done. A result can be done very quickly, and you can know whether the antibodies are there or not. Now, I've spoken today in in uh, Dade County, Miami Dade County. We're going to be running the story. Uh, I think it's tomorrow, uh, talking about a, an, an effort there to screen the population. Uh, in Telluride, they're doing it. In Mount Sinai in New York, they've developed this test. and But it's not been scaled up to the point where millions and millions of people can do it. So I think that we need to do that very widely across the entire United States. Uh, it's not being done yet. We have to prioritize it. I realize a lot of people are you know, screaming for the, the there, there are a lot of different things we need, PPE, ventilators. Uh, we need more doctors and more nurses and more health professionals and more vents and all this other stuff. But boy, do we ever need this antibody test. So Dr. Lapook, on the antibody test, I want to play you a soundbite that is partially related. I'm not a medical expert. You are. But Dr. Anthony Fauci was asked about whether or not we could only return to a state of national normalcy if we have a vaccine. Let me play a little bit of that sound, and then we'll have a deeper discussion about the application potentially of an antibody test. Let's listen to that sound. If, if back to normal means acting like there never was a coronavirus problem, I, I don't think that's going to happen until we do have a situation where you can completely protect the population. But when we say getting back to normal, we mean something very different from what we're going through right now. Because right now we are in a very intense mitigation. And by protecting the entire population, he meant a vaccine. But an antibody test might help us get some, some way in that direction, would it not? Yeah. You know, there's this concept of herd immunity. And that means that after a certain percentage of the population, usually 80, 90 percent, even above 90 percent, are infected with a certain virus, then um, sort of everybody, the people who are not infected are protected just because there are so many people who are immune that it's hard for the virus to spread. So if you could, if you could widely test people with that antibody and find out the point where we're starting to get more and more people immune... First of all, you could send those people, again, asterisk, we're not quite sure whether the antibody titer, how much antibody you have against coronavirus, if that's going to translate to absolute protection, partial protection for how long you'll have the protection. But assuming that people can try to figure that out, you could start to get people back to the front lines, especially the the uh, frontline people, the first responders. So that's one thing in terms of getting back to a new normal, and it is going to be a new normal. And the other is when you get to the point where there's so many people uh, who have been immune that even though you yourself are not yourself immune, uh, then it could be less dangerous for you to go out there. Uh, but um, I, do, I do think that we're not going to, hopefully we won't go back to the way we were before where we weren't thinking about hand washing and coughing into the crook of your arm or into a tissue. Um, I was looking at the statistics today for the flu in the department, in uh, the department of health of New York state. And it looks like the flu season may be, maybe possibly, um, ending a little earlier. It's hard to tell because it may just be that people aren't being tested for the flu as much this year. But I was talking to the dean, uh, Michelle Williams, the dean of the School of Public Health for Harvard, and we were talking about possible silver linings here. And one of the silver linings of a new normal would be that people are more conscious of washing their hands. Maybe uh, flu will go down a little. Maybe foodborne illnesses, which happen in the millions every year, will go down because people are more conscious of infectious disease measures. You know, Dr. Lapuka, I want to ask you about something that wasn't as topical in the Monday briefing, but it was quite topical in the weekend briefing, which is, and on Friday of last week, which is this advocacy from the president himself about hydroxychloroquine. 
And today, April 6th, Monday, the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, said anecdotally in New York, there is some positive information. How should the public evaluate not only the president's advocacy, but Governor Cuomo saying anecdotally, there is some positive information? I think, you know, anecdotally, anecdotal evidence is not something that we've really embraced in medicine because when you have something where about 80% of the people uh, get better, uh, even without, you know, have relatively mild illness or they get better on their own, um, you throw that in there. Um, how do you know what's placebo effect? How do you know that they weren't going to get better on their own? This is a time, you know, I've said it before, and Tony Fauci has basically said it, where you embrace science. You don't throw away all of what we've learned over, over the last century, for example, that you have to do these trials. Now, it's not to say that you're not rooting for hydroxychloroquine. Wouldn't it be great if it worked? But you can't say that uh, because there, for example, because there were relatively few side effects when given to people with rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, that that's going to have the same safety profile when given to people with COVID-19, who, for example, it's looking like COVID-19, that the coronavirus may attack the heart in some people. And one of the side effects for hydroxychloroquine is a problem with an irregular heartbeat. Now, Usually it's very safe, um, and we're only giving the hydroxychloroquine for relatively shorter periods of time. But, you know, this is a new population of people. So I think anything that is pharmacologically active and can help is pharmacologically active and can hurt. So we have to look now that uh, many, many, many more people than before have been taking hydroxychloroquine may be taking it. Once the numbers get up, we might, we might start to see some problem we haven't seen before. So um, I, I think we really, you know, in medicine, if you, it's not about putting down a bet. I mean, that bet may turn out to be right. It's about embracing science, looking at the data uh, and having an analytical approach to it that uh, is really saying, look, whichever way it turns out, I'm going to follow the data. One last question for you, Dr. LaPook. Dr. Anthony Fauci has made a couple of statements that I think caught uh, medical professionals' attention that there is a high statistical, meaning like 25% of those who are asymptomatic have the virus, meaning they show nothing and they still have it, and that there is something in some people, and they don't know what the some person common denominator is, that this is so much worse for some people than it is for others. Do you have any thoughts on either of those two topics? You know, both of them really quickly. I mean, the fact that people, a significant number of people can have no symptoms and still spread it is the reason, I think, why you had that recommendation for wearing bandanas or homemade uh, masks, because it's sort of the equivalent of somebody covering their mouth with the crook of their arm always when they're outside. It's not so much you're going to get protected from somebody else because the virus is a tenth of a micron and it can go through or around the mask, but it's if you cough or sneeze, it'll may give some partial, partial, partial protection. And the reason why partial is so important is the last thing we want people to do is go out with a homemade mask or bandana and think that they're complete, have a false sense of security. They need to do everything else they were always doing. You know, the social, the distancing, the six feet, the cough, the proper hygiene, the washing their hands, all that stuff. And then in addition, if you want to wear the mask or the bandana, that's on top of that. Um, and then you had another question. What was the other question? Which is that in some people, and we don't know the common denominator, it's so much worse than it is for people who appear to have a very similar demographic profile. 
Yeah. So we certainly know that the majority of people who have bad outcomes are people with underlying conditions or they are elderly. But you're probably, you're talking about people who appear to be healthy, right? They're 30 years old and and they end up and, well, first of all, um, we've always had that uh, with with illnesses where for some reason, uh, people who seem to be fine uh, have severe illness. And of course, those are the ones you hear of. You don't hear about the many, many more who do well. But one theory of that is that really what the problem in those people is, is not the virus itself, which it is. The virus is attacking the lungs, but it's a friendly fire problem. In some people, they may have an overactive immune system that is basically ending up um, attacking your own lungs. It's blowing up your own body, your own, and, it, and it's like howitzers on your own body in the attempt to kill the virus. And so in the attempt to kill the own vi- your own virus by turning your immune system against it, you end up attacking your own body by mistake. So it's friendly fire. And that's where some of the injury that you, you know, the, the acute respiratory distress syndrome, and we're seeing all sorts of other problems now that we didn't even realize were happening. I- increased coagulation problems and neurological issues, um, blood clots in the legs. There's, there's so much organ failure. We're learning a lot of th- about this that is still taking us by surprise. That's the voice of CBS News Chief Medical Correspondent, Dr. John LaPook. That's all for this episode of CBS Audio's Debriefing the Briefing. Until next time, I'm Major Garrett in Washington. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go... Tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.